Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Max. Live every weekday at noon and then up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Monday, the 20th of November. Coming up on the program, logistics chaos in South Africa. No trucks being offloaded at Richards Bay and nine days worth of cargo stuck outside Durban as the port struggles with equipment breakdowns. More on the rise of reported anti-Semitic incidents in South Africa. The Independent Electoral Commission on measures that will be taken next year to prevent voter fraud. And South Africa's snake anti-venom shortage is solved for now at least. Transnet through Richards Bay Terminals has circulated a notice that it will suspend the receiving of all cargo that is brought to the port via road freight, all because of road congestion in the area and it's reached what is being termed as uncontrollable levels. It is a serious situation. Let's explore the impact of that decision with Gavin Kelly, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Road Freight Association. Uh, Gavin, we're talking Monday lunchtime. What's the position right now? Uh, good afternoon, Jeremy. Good afternoon to to your listeners. Well, it seems that we haven't had very much progress. Uh, Transnet has contacted us saying they would like to have an urgent meeting with us, and I suppose that's because of what we've been saying in the media. But the problem is that the root causes are still there. They haven't disappeared, and we've had these causes mounting up one on top of the other over the last couple of years. And and we need to find a solution to that. That's really what we've got to do. Remind us of those root causes. Well, there are probably three very big ones, Jeremy. The first one is that there's this collapse of rail. So we have this huge amount of core commodities now being transported to the ports by truck. Secondly, the ports were not built to take these commodities by truck. They were built to take it by rail. So their whole infrastructure in that port process of loading or offloading or getting onto ships needs to have an interface between the trucks and this loading system. And then finally, the roads around the ports and the access points into the ports just cannot deal with these thousands of vehicles that are trying to get in and out because of course there's other cargo that needs to get into the port that was traditionally coming by road. Gavin can you describe the scene for me? Uh, Well you've got long queues of trucks bringing coal or manganese or chrome some sort of mineral timber You've got these long queues outside of the port trying to get through a very narrow entrance, and it's narrow because it wasn't built to take continuous uh, loads of trucks. You've got a booking systems, which the uh, transit port terminals has implemented to try and manage how the trucks get in, when they get in, where they go. And, of course, within the port, you've got very, very small area, congested area, because no one thought trucks would 
this amount of trucks would come into the port to offload. So now you have this area which confines these vehicles in the way in which they both enter and leave and how they move around in that port. So you've got this area down at, at Richards Bay where there are long queues trying to get in, long queues trying to get out. There's goods being offloaded in the port and it's just absolute chaos. And that uh, has the impact of increased uh, safety risk, I imagine. Yes, amongst many other risks, you have increased safety risk. You've got risk for those standing out in the queues. If you stand two or three days out in queues, you have the chance of being attacked. But of course, inside as well, there's this huge scurrying trying to get things moving backwards and forwards. What do you want to see achieved after this meeting if it goes ahead? Well, I think, first of all, we need to sort out these massive queues, Jeremy. You can't have drivers sitting in trucks all over the place waiting to get in and waiting to get out. So I think the first thing we need to do is to find a way in which we can schedule these trucks that are operating in and out of the port so that we can have a place for them to stand safely away from port so we have those choke points moving uh, freely. The long-term can't be long-term, but it's going to be long-term. The long-term solution is to sort out the rail to make sure it can get this to port and that we don't have the secondary knock-ons, which you're seeing now happening at places like La Bombo, where these huge queues are now appearing. Do you have any confidence in Transnet in being able to resolve this issue? Short answer to that, Jeremy, no. So we are in for the long haul here? I think we're in for the long haul. We've been saying to Transnet there are key operations that you need to give or concession to private sector. We were talking about a a terminal down at the port of Durban how many months ago that was going over to private sector. Nothing has happened. So we're going to this is going to take a couple of months, unfortunately. And while that is happening, people are now starting to take legal action. Yes. You see the local authorities are saying that their roads are being destroyed, that there is a huge safety risk in terms of traffic management, in ensuring that the roads are safer, that other vehicles and other people can access the port and access the routes around it. They've put their traffic officers onto longer shifts. And of course, that all costs money. So these various authorities are saying, no, no, we can't do this anymore. And, and you need to cover the cost and are hopefully for force them into some sort of action. Gavin Kelly, we've got something called the National Logistics Crisis Committee. What's all that about? Well, a couple of months ago, Jerry, the president had taken note of a number of the logistics challenges. And this is the greatest, I think the greatest heartache for all of us is that what's happened at Richards Bay didn't happen overnight. It's been coming and we've been saying it's been coming. And we've been saying, you know, you need to fix certain things like the rails and the ports and the way in which these operate and how they operate. And a couple of months ago, the National Logistics Crisis Committee was formed. It has various legs to it or various parts that address various things. Um, and it is an, in, an intention is to fix what we are seeing. But at the moment, we don't seem to be getting very fast, very getting anywhere very quickly. Sounds like it's a waste of time. Well, at this stage, it looks like it's a waste of time. There have been some very important uh, documents that have come out from it that have pointed at where the challenges are. So there has been some very good work. What really now needs to happen, as always, Jeremy, is now we actually need to do what we need to do. Somebody needs to be held accountable and somebody has going to have to start putting in place those corrections that have been missing for so long. Who is that somebody? 
Well, at this stage, various parts of the infrastructure we're talking about uh, fall under various government departments or under Transnet. We have seen that some of the executives have left. So the question is, are they going to hold somebody really accountable or are they going to take that leap of faith that we've been pushing for so long to concession some parts to give it to the private sector so that business can get going? What are your members saying to you? Well, huge frustration. Their businesses are really suffering and it isn't always about making a profit, but let's face it, if you don't make a profit, why would you be in business? So first of all, there's huge drain on resources in terms of keeping the wheels turning. The assets, the trucks, the drivers are being driven to the end. The drivers are are, are really shuttling backwards and forwards. They're not really getting any good rest periods. Even if you rest the required minimum rest periods, these are long and they are very, very uh, anxious trips that they do. There's always some sort of conflict. You never know what's going to happen. So our members are saying that this needs to be resolved. We just cannot keep going on like this. And just a final question then, as all of this continues to unfold, uh, the economic impact uh, is becoming more and more serious. Well, if we don't export, we don't generate revenue. And yes, you can say it's businesses generating revenue, but if they generate revenue, we generate tax. And tax means we can do the things that we need to do. Around the world, people are looking at us and hopefully not laughing at us, but saying, you know, if I cannot get my goods out of South Africa through ports, I'm going to use a different port or what the heck I'm going to go and buy it from somewhere else. Gavin Kelly, thank you very much indeed. Chief Executive Officer of the Road Freight Association. Coming up later in the program, part two of the story as we look at the container chaos in Durban. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. The South African Jewish Board of Deputies says anti-Semitism in South Africa has, in its words, increased nearly tenfold and is being fueled by inflammatory rhetoric by some in political leadership. Professor Karen Miller is the National Chairperson of the South African Jewish Board of Deputies and is with me now. And first of all, how is this manifesting? So typically in a month or six week period, we would get about six uh, on on a normal year, we'd get about six incidences of anti-Semitism and they would typically be quite low level of anti-Semitism. So, for example, things like graffiti or comments or something like that. What we found is not only this massive increase in anti-Semitism, but also the nature of the anti-Semitism or the severity of the incidences has changed. So what we found is we've had um, at least two incidences of violent anti-Semitism and things like people being stopped on their way to synagogue, spat at, that kind of thing. Among the incidents, Professor, is the case where a Johannesburg rabbi's car was reportedly rammed into and damaged, I understand, before the assailant pursued him through heavy traffic. What happened there? So that's exactly what happened. He was driving. Because he's a rabbi, he's visibly Jewish um, in that he obviously dresses in a way with a hat and in a suit that Mm. looks Jewish. There was a, it seemed at first to be a road rage incident. There was an attempt to cut him off. There was an attempt, in fact, to push him off the road, it appears. He then basically tried to escape the car that was harassing him, managed to get to a garage. At the garage, the man got out of the car, basically, um, 
damaged his car, attempted to get into the car, and only when security was called and he was managed to be escorted, the, the rabbi was escorted away and, and escorted to his home, did the incident end. So it's really pretty terrifying if you think about it. What impact is this having on the Jewish community in South Africa? It's really, it's, it's so unfortunate. I think I've never seen the Jewish community, and I've been in community leadership for 10 years. I've never seen the Jewish community fearful in this way. It's a resilient community. We've been through a lot, both the South Africans, as all South Africans have, through COVID, etc. But the the concern around this rising anti-Semitism, and, and one of the things that we're seeing also, which is having a massive impact, is boycotts of Jewish businesses. These are not boycotts of Israeli businesses, they're boycotts of Jewish businesses, and about 20 businesses are being impacted at the moment. Some of them large, some of them small, and that's having a really awful impact on the community. Who do you believe is responsible? So I don't know. I think hopefully, I'm hoping that most... uh, So there are two things. There's calls for anti-Semitism, which we're seeing coming out in the... and, and calls for attack on Jewish institutions, which we are seeing coming out in the rallies, for example. So people calling for attacks on Jewish schools in Cape Town, for example. That seems to be an organised form of anti-Semitism, and I hold the organisers of those rallies responsible for it. Individual incidents, I'm assuming, are isolated attacks, but are encouraged and are, they are I think that they're given some kind of sense that they would be acceptable based on the rhetoric that we're seeing really across the board from our government, from these rallies, and we really hope that this rhetoric and this temperature will be brought down. Professor, you talk about the Jewish community being fearful. What is the response now from the community? I'm assuming, for instance, extra security precautions would be considered. So certainly extra security precautions, and I have to say we've had a number of meetings with the security cluster, and they have reassured us repeatedly that they are concerned over these issues, that they will keep an eye on them, and that we can call on them at any time should we be aware of any threats to the community. So I do want to thank the security cluster for that, because I think that they are taking us very, very seriously. So, Professor Milner, what then are you looking for from the South African authorities in terms of uh, lowering the rhetoric and perhaps just lowering the temperature? So I think we've seen across the world, regardless of the position with regard to Israel and the war in Gaza, we've seen governments coming out very clearly in support of their Jewish communities and against anti-Semitism. We've seen them speaking at Jewish institutions. We've seen them speaking at synagogues. On top of that, I really think it's important, given the boycotts that's been happening against Jewish businesses, that the government come out strongly against the boycotts. These boycotts have absolutely no impact on Gaza. They have no impact on the war. They have no impact on the Palestinians. They have an impact on South African Jews and they have an impact on the South African economy and South African jobs. We would certainly hope that the South African government would come out against them. Are you initiating dialogue in that respect? Yes, we are. So we are writing to the Minister of Trade and Industry. Uh, We're writing to various ministers to try and engage on this issue to make sure that South Africa doesn't suffer for this really hateful exercise. Are you suggesting at this point, though, that government is failing in that respect? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the, the rhetoric that we've heard from government is quite 
There's no reason not, we've got no problem with criticism of Israel, but the level of rhetoric, the demonization that we've seen from the South African government, the appearance of people from the ANC in these hate-filled rallies where people have called for, we believe, anti-Semitic calls against the South African Jewish community and against Jewish schools, we're seeing that coming from the ruling party. And we really are hoping that this will now be dialed down. Professor Karen Milner from the South African Jewish Board of Deputies, the National Chairperson, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. I want to return now to the logistics chaos on South Africa's eastern seaboard. And the South African Association of Freight Forwarders says over 70,000 containers are currently stuck on ships outside the Durban port, which is battling with equipment breakdowns. Now, coupled with the crisis at Richards Bay that we've just been talking about, these two events are having a major impact on the country's economy. In conversation now with Eugene Goddard, who is the editor of Freight News. He is working that story very hard, no doubt. Eugene, how can 70,000 containers be stuck on ships outside the port? So to answer your question, it's, um, you know, this is not a new issue, but it has it, is, it has come to this crisis because of, um, I think, dilly-dallying around the issue on the part of Transnet. They have for months, if not years, known about what's happening at the ports that um, South Africa's ports really sit with what one of our sources at the South African Association of Freight Forwarders has termed a PPE problem. Um, and that's not as, as in COVID, but or, or it's, it's personnel, productivity, equipment. Um, Transnet has known about this for years and has not addressed these issues around personnel, productivity and mm. equipment with the necessary urgency that it deserves. So um, focusing for a moment just on equipment, gantry cranes, uh, rubber tire gantries, straddle carriers, ship to, uh, ship to shore uh, uh, cranes, that sort of thing, break down with regularity and they are not repaired um, in time to handle, to keep pace with the amount of containers coming in, keeping in mind that we're heading into the festive season. So there's more imports coming in. But unfortunately, as Murphy's Law will have it, well, it's not just Murphy's Law, as the law of Transnet, or rather the lack of action on, of Transnet will have it, we're not going to, I think, meet consumer demand in time for everyone to, I suppose, have a, a happy Christmas. And 70,000 containers today, Eugene, is likely to be 71,000 containers tomorrow. It gets worse and worse and worse outside the city of Durban. Uh, that uh, that stretch of seawater is going to start resembling a parking lot. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, consider that, for example, we spoke to an importer this morning, um, a person who, who brings in substrates into South Africa. And just to put us in the picture is he's waiting. He, he has been waiting for a container that his supplier from China told him was on the water outside Durban on the 22nd of October. He only received his goods on the 17th of November. All right. So apart from issues on the water side in at a, at a port like Durban, for example, there are also land side issues. Um, so and, and, and all of these things time and the importers and their agents, especially the importers, the shippers, they are the ones who feel the, um, the pinch the most because they are charged surcharges by the lines who want their boxes back. But the, so the entire chain is snagged 
by what's happening at a port like like Durban. Um, and it really is about time that, um, you know, the, the government and Transnet, in tandem with Transnet, step up mm. and solve this, this situation. And if I can just... Sorry, Jeremy. No, go ahead. Um, if, if I might add that um, I believe we have reliably learned this morning that there is movement with the National Logistics Crisis Committee. Um, and apparently they have signed the necessary um, OEM contracts, it's um, original equipment manufacturers, to um, receive spares and so forth that will see them through a period of, of, of 10 years. Now, um, we are all holding thumbs that this will come to pass. These contracts will probably be concluded by the 31st of December, and but it will take another 6 to 12 months before these equipment mm. and spares arrive in South Africa. So, so I, d I don't know. To be very honest with you, um, I, I can't see that the congestion at the port of Durban is going to be easily solved. Um, there is no certainly there is no solvable solution. Eugene Goddard is the editor of Freight News. Thank you very much indeed for that update. MoneyWeb at midday for all your up-to-date stories. The Independent Electoral Commission says more than a million registrations were recorded across the sun, uh, country on Saturday, and this, I guess, bodes well for next year's poll. More now from the Deputy Chief Electoral Officer, Masejo Sheburi. Masejo, good afternoon to you. How then did the final numbers stack up? Good afternoon, Jeremy. Uh, to This afternoon, the Commission will release the final numbers, including the analysis uh, by demographics. But we estimate that we interacted with no fewer than 2.2 million South Africans at the level of the voting stations to enable them to register as voters for the first time and or to in, uh, inspect and update their registration uh, details. We also had a significant number of persons who availed themselves of the online portal uh, to register as voters. While the registration weekend has come and gone, the portal remains available to anyone to go there, create a profile, upload an image of an ID, and register mm. as a vote. Well, let's pick up on that if we can. How are you going to ensure the security and privacy of voter information next year, particularly in the context of increasing digital registration, as you've just outlined to me? And there were problems with registration this weekend online, were there not? Yes, there, there, indeed, there were a number of, of delays, but those are principally, uh, Jeremy, because people uh, either did not follow the prompts on our system, for example. A requirement to register is a production of a ID document. So uh, on the system, we ask a person to capture their ID and also upload an image of an ID document. So if the ID image was not clear or the ID was old, the system will give you a pending message so we'll have people go in physically, verify if the two match, and where the two match, they will clear those discrepancies. Do you think? Do you think the? Do you think the system is too complicated for people? No, no, we don't. We don't think so. I think we've we've sought to strike a good balance between a system that safeguards the integrity of the election, a system that is easy to use, but also a system that ensures that whatever detail of voters we harvest, we can uh, we can we can preserve. And not and not uh, place it in risk of being uh, of falling into uh, unauthorized hands. What percentage of the eligible South African population is still not registered to vote? 
from the recent uh, census data, the census tells us that 62 million South Africans in the country of those 38 million are age eligible. Uh, by this afternoon, we must have about 26.6 minimum people on the on the roll. So the difference will be between 38 million and 26 million. That's still a long way to go, though, isn't it? You've still it is, got, it you've is, still it got is, great it gaps is, in the system. It is a big number indeed, because that number almost equates to the total number of people who voted in 2021 local government elections. Maser Oshibori, thank you very much indeed, Deputy Chief Electoral Officer. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Well, summer is here and that means we're heading into snakebite season and there have been concerns about a lack of anti-venom. Professor Timothy Hardcastle speaks for the National Snakebite Advisory Group. He's with me now. And firstly, Professor, what were the primary causes then behind the recent shortage of anti-venom? So load shedding, number one, because the effect of load shedding on the the production facilities at SAVP was was considerable, and I'm sure they can address that better than I can. Uh, there was also a backlog in production because of a, a shortage of suitable horses for the production of the serum. But more importantly, was just that we kind of run out as a result of quite a busy snake bite season. The backlog has been largely addressed. Let's put it this way. I'm not aware of anybody complaining that they don't have anti-venom in facilities that normally stock it at this point. So the the SAVP seems to have uh, caught up uh, with the backlog in, in country. I do know there's still a significant backlog in terms of supplying countries north of our borders, Mm. um, and that includes the Equis antivenom, which obviously we don't have the carpet viper in this country, but they are one of the suppliers of of the carpet viper antivenom, which is common sort of in central and northern parts of Africa. So that I know is still short. And as far as I'm aware, also the spider and the scorpion antivenoms, there's there's still a relative shortage, but fortunately neither of those are particularly high turnover envenomations. So some good news, but nonetheless, what would the potential risks and impacts be if this country and other regions face a shortage of antivenom, particularly as you refer to snake bite season? Uh, and we are going into snake bite season now. It's sort of from October to February in in this country, the the warmer months because the snakes are out and they're basking and they're mating and they're doing all those good things. Mm. And so, yes, the potential for bites is obviously higher in this time of the year. Certainly in some of the hospitals in northern KwaZulu-Natal, they're seeing one or two snake bites a day. It doesn't mean that they all need antivenom. Approximately... One in 10 to one in 12 patients that come with a snake bite will have a bite that requires antivenom. There are 10 snakes that are covered by the polyvalent and one that is covered by the monovalent. And um, if those snakes bite you, uh, ideally you should be getting antivenom if there's a significant envenomation. We were also very fortunate that there is a fair amount of dry bites happening, which is where the snake bites but doesn't actually inject venom. Uh, some more warning bites. Mm. But yes, the potential is there that if the if the production line doesn't continue, that we may run into shortages by next year, February again. Again, the answer there would be best given by SAVP mm. because they can tell you what their current production rates are. 
What I am interested in is how the cost of anti-venom affects its accessibility and affordability for the general public and also for healthcare facilities. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what the private sector is paying for Ampule at this stage. I know it costs about 1,500 rand an Ampule. And for example, for a black mamba bite, you're probably using between eight and 12 Ampules, maybe up to as many as 20. Certainly with a gaboon adder bite, which fortunately is very rare, we start with 20 ampules. You know, in the public sector, we are constitutionally mandated to to provide treatment and there are designated facilities that keep antivenom, usually the bigger training hospitals and some of the bigger rural district hospitals will, will have uh, antivenom. And we can usually share between us fairly easily or we move the patients fairly quickly. In the private sector, again, there are designated hospitals in the various groups that keep a supply of antivenom. I know the NetCare group is, is very effective in charting where their antivenom supplies are and they can help out the state and the state will potentially help out the private sector as well. So getting antivenom to the patient in a timely fashion, as long as the patient gets to hospital in a timely fashion, is usually doable. The challenge is if the patient is bitten somewhere very rural and and there's significant delays getting them to care. And this applies particularly sort of more inland with the the so-called cytotoxic bites where you have tissue damage, uh, the Mozambican spitting cobras, the puff adders, and, and that ilk. Whereas on the, the snakes that are found more along the coast, the green mambas, the black mambas, even in the Western Cape, the Cape Cobras, those are the ones that can kill you fairly rapidly. But usually people seem to be able to make it to a healthcare facility and, and we can usually get around to treating them in a timely fashion. Professor, you talk about snake bite season. What I'm interested to know is what impact climate change is having on this process and whether that... Uh, season is getting longer perhaps because of a change in in, in in maybe in migration or in behavior as far as these reptiles are concerned? Yeah, we are seeing a little bit of migration. Uh, and again, the, the people to speak to about that really are the herpetologists. They will be able to give you that kind of geographical change far more accurately than I can. But um, we are seeing changes in the distribution of certain of the snakes. I don't think we've seen too much of a change in terms of the sort of peak season. Uh, It's always been sort of October through February with a a real peak around December, January. And again, it depends where you are in the country. So in the Western Cape, it's a little bit later. In the KwaZulu-Natal area, it sort of starts from about October and goes through to about January and starts calming down by sort of late January, early February. Up in the northern province, uh, again, it depends on how their individual climate is for that particular Mm. year. Professor Timothy Hardcastle, thank you very much indeed. I appreciate it. As we finish the Monday program, other stories on our radar. Gauteng residents have been warned to brace for a heat wave across several parts of the province. And a new Oxfam report says the richest 1% of humanity is responsible for more carbon emission than the poorest 66%. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Goodbye to you and thank you for listening.
Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.